All right. He that is void of wisdom. We're in chapter 11, and we're in verse 12. Reading again the couplet here, He that is void of wisdom despiseth his neighbor, but a man of understanding holdeth his peace. A talebearer revealeth secrets, but he that is of a faithful spirit concealeth the matter. He that is void, he that is destitute, he that lacks heart, literally, the word is the word lab, which means heart, and often is translated understanding or wisdom in some cases, and speaking of the heart as the soul of the individual, the mind, the emotions, the will, the conscience, the self-consciousness of that person. But now, when a person lacks heart, there is a particular way that it is demonstrated. Now, I'm not saying this is the only way, but there is a specific way that is delineated in this verse uh, that um, uh, reveals, really, uh, that condition. It's a heart condition. It's the man that lacks that kind of character that uh, God desires in his soul. And so what is, of what is he guilty? Well, he's guilty of despising his neighbor. Now, what exactly does that mean? The word despise is the word booze. Booze. Not what you drink, nor what you build. Uh, I remember when we were studying the book of Nehemiah here a number of years back, I, I stood up there all morning long and talked about how the Israelites on that day uh, of the Feast of Tabernacles made booths and uh, booths, booths and everybody uh, thought I was saying booze all morning long you know and I that had nothing to do with it at all but uh, this is a different kind of booze it means to show disrespect it means to belittle to show contempt to hold someone as insignificant that's the concept of this particular word. To despise uh, wisdom is characteristic of fools. We could look back at chapter 1 and verse 7 where we first saw the word after talking about the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge which is the motto of the book of Proverbs. It says, but fools despise, there's the word, they make little of wisdom and instruction. The, the fool is an individual uh, who when uh, the, the wise uh, uh, teaching comes along, uh, he's not interested. He belittles it. He said, that's for uh, old ladies and, uh, and little kids. I'm not interested in, in this kind of foolishness. A lot of God's wisdom is despised because there are a lot of fools around. Proverbs 23 verse 7 says, uh, for as he thinketh in his heart, that can't be right. Well, I, I must have the wrong one there. All right, um, because the word despise isn't in that in that verse, so I missed it there. But again, it, it's basically it, there's a verse that basically has the same idea uh, there in chapter 23, and then chapter 13, chapter 13. 
It talks about despising the law. Uh, chapter 13, verse 13, Whoso despiseth the word shall be destroyed, but he that feareth the commandment shall be rewarded. Now here despised is contrasted with fearing uh, and uh, with, 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 with standing in awe of and reverencing. And so it's an irreverent attitude, in this case, toward the word, toward God's law, toward that uh, which is provided uh, in his word. And then in uh, chapter 23 and verse 22, it says, Hearken unto thy father that begot thee, and despise not thy mother when she is old. Uh, there is a tremendous danger after uh, you grow up a little bit uh, to no longer regard uh, the wisdom of your mother and uh, to belittle her or to show contempt just uh, by the way you act or by what you say. And uh, so you're, you're not to despise your mother. You're not to belittle her. Now that's the word uh, that's before us here. Now our text says that those without sense, those that are, are, do not have a character built into their life, those individuals despise or belittle their neighbor. And the word neighbor is a word we've seen before, reah, which means associate. It's a person uh, close to you. It's not strictly the person who lives next door to you. Uh, that's not the, the only association. It's anyone with whom you might associate that is not directly related to you. It's not your wife, although that could be applied too. Uh, it's not uh, your, uh, your uncle or your aunt. It's not your kin. But it is an associate, and it could be a person with whom you work. Uh, it could be a person uh, who is uh, um, in your neighborhood, or a person who uh, it works with you in some ministry in the church. Uh, the idea, though, is that uh, when, you, when you don't have that good kind of sense, that good kind of character built into your life, then there is an evidence of it by this belittling of your neighbor. Uh, chapter 14 of Proverbs, in verse 21. He that despiseth his neighbor sinneth. And now notice what the contrast is here. But he that hath mercy on the poor, happy is he. Uh, you, you have an associate and you despise him. Well, that... God says it's sin. It's sin to belittle someone else, to not recognize that they have an input, that they have a value, that they have something uh, that is important to contribute to your life. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, the person who shows mercy, the person who himself uh, relates that mercy to another individual who perhaps even is uh, beneath you, uh, but you, you have a special care for him. That individual uh, is really a happy person. The Good Samaritan uh, was a happy person. Remember uh, when uh, Christ uh, said that they were to love their neighbor as themselves, um, it, it's always interesting to, to see the, the uh, trap that these Pharisees and uh, uh, scribes and so on got themselves into. They always ask the wrong question. Or at least they ask the question of the wrong person. Uh, because uh, on one hand, you have uh, 
the Lord quoting the law, which they all knew, saying, love your neighbors yourself. Uh, but one of the individuals said, who's my neighbor? That was the wrong question, because Christ told them. And Christ said, uh, there was a man that fell among thieves, uh, and, uh, and he, uh, he was laying there in the road, or on the side of the road, and he was wounded, and along comes a Jew. Along comes a Levite. Along comes a priest. And they see him lying there. And they walk right by. But then comes a Samaritan. Now the Samaritans were the most despised of all people. Uh, the, the, the Jewish Talmud and uh, uh, Mishnah had some very choice words concerning Samaritans. And um, they were said very religiously, but they, uh, uh, they, they boiled down to the fact that, that um, if you want something that is less than human, something that is, is worse than the, the dirtiest dog you ever found, then find a Samaritan. That's what he is. He's useless. He's worthless. Uh, the Jews were very proud of their heritage and of their bloodline. Uh, these people, of course, the Jews, as we mentioned them, uh, were a part of Israel uh, in that the two southern tribes uh, were Judah and Benjamin. And they composed the nation, uh, and they were a part of that returned remnant even after their captivity. But Israel was a different matter. Israel got all mixed up. Uh, with uh, the Assyrians and uh, other uh, nationalities and they intermingled and the half-breed children that they have were the Samaritans. And they were utterly despised. They, they were like the uh, so-called colored, uh, colored people in uh, South Africa. They're neither black nor white. And uh, they're half-breeds. And that's the way the Jews looked on... Uh, on the, uh, on the Samaritan people. They had no dealings with them at all. But here comes a Samaritan. And he sees this man by the side of the road. He recognizes he's a Jew. But he pours in the oil and the wine. And he puts him in his own donkey. And he takes him to the inn and out of his own pocket. He pays the man. And he says if he runs up a, a bigger bill when I come back, I'll, I'll pay you more. I'll pay his bill. I'll take care of him until he's well enough to leave. He saved the Jew's life. And then Christ just asked a simple question. Which man was neighbor unto the man that fell among thieves? Well, there was no question about what the answer was. It was the one that showed mercy to him. He that shows mercy to the poor is a happy man. So you see, there's, there, is a, there is a tendency within the human heart to do like the scribe and the, uh, like the Pharisee and the Levite did and see the man there and say, it's none of my business, I'm not going to get involved, uh, and despise the man. Uh, they look at him and say, oh, he's too far gone. I don't have uh, any reason to try, to try to do anything for him. Yeah, I, I heard as a boy the story, maybe some of you have heard it, uh, it's worth repeating, however, 
for especially for those boys that haven't heard it. Now you'll hear it as a boy and you'll be able to uh, stand up here someday and say, I remember hearing an old man tell me when I was a boy uh, this story, okay? I, I don't think I was any older than about uh, seven or eight when I heard the story of the man, the men who were in the uh, 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 snowstorm and uh, one of them fell and couldn't go on any further. And uh, the, the, the two guys that were left, uh, one of them said, we've got to stay here and help him. We've got to somehow try to, try to carry him or do something. The fellow says, no way. I'm not going to uh, risk my life to save him. He's too far gone anyway. And, uh, and so the one man stayed with him. And the other fellow, he took off. And uh, the, the fellow that stayed with the other finally got enough strength up and he picked the fellow up and he tried to carry him. And as he went along in the snow, he was just exhausted. But the warmth of the two bodies revived them both. And they came along after a while and found the totally frozen remains of the other man who had gone on alone. And the two men that stayed together actually were both saved and the other man uh, perished. Now, you know, there's, there's a tremendous lesson in that. Not only that when you're in a snowstorm, you carry the other guy because it warms you up. But the, 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 the compassion, the caring, the concern for that individual, that's, that's showing that you're a neighbor. You don't despise them. Now, remember in, uh, in Romans, in the chapter 12, it said, uh, let not a man think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but let him think soberly. Uh, that means that if you think you're somebody when you're nobody, uh, then it's a form of insanity, all right? You're a little crazy if you begin to think of yourself as being so high. Whenever a person is has, uh, is high-minded, or whenever a person thinks of himself more highly than he ought to think, that individual automatically, because of his lofty position to which he has elevated himself, has a tendency to belittle and despise his neighbor. The only reason that you think the other fellow isn't so hot is because you think you are hot. And you may deny it in a sort of a false humility. Oh, I'm very humble, really. Uh, and I really don't think highly of myself at all, but I also think he's a bum, you know. But that's, that's really not the true case. The only thing that could cause you to, to think of yourself, or the only thing that could cause you to despise your neighbor, is to have an attitude that somehow you're superior. And Scripture warns you time after time uh, that, that you should not have that attitude. We've gone over this uh, numerous times, and I hope that we'll go over it a thousand times more before we finish Proverbs, maybe before we finish Proverbs 11. But uh, there, is a, there is a basic, there's a basic contrast that Scripture gives all the way through, something that runs from Genesis to Revelation as a, as a sort of a, uh, a, a theme along with the other great themes of the Bible. And it is the idea of pride versus humility. Now, pride actually can be thought of in two ways. Because pride exhibits itself in selfishness. 
And it's interesting because the particular word for humility, one very uh, astute scholar uh, doing word studies on, on this idea of humility in the New Testament, says that, that um, the person who is humble is not a person merely who, who uh, uh, tries to uh, cut himself down. He says the person that's humble is a person who doesn't think of himself at all. Uh, and so there is a selflessness that comes there. Pride, that's one part, one part of it. Pride always, in the Old Testament and New Testament alike, though different words are used, obviously, in the uh, two languages, always has a sense of independence. which is the essence of sin, all right? Independence. Satan uh, thought that what he could do is make it independent of God. He tempted Adam and Eve, the sin of pride, that they could make it independent of God. You take of this tree, you don't need God anymore. You'll be like God. You will, have, you will know good from evil. And uh, just think how wonderful that'd be. Just think how great you are when you've made that wonderful discovery. Uh, and uh, it, was, it was pride, basically. And man, ever since, the essence of humanism is man can do it independent of God. There are a lot of humanists, secular humanists, that do not deny the existence of God. So I'd say, sure, I believe in God. I just don't need Him. They might not say it in so many words, but by their actions, it's screamed out loud and clear. I can make it alone. I don't need God. You are as proud as you are independent of God. If you, if you think that you can go to work today and have a good day and really don't need God's help, or that your particular project that you're working on, you can do it without God, then uh, that is pride. To that degree, in the degree to which you are dependent upon God, you will will be humble because humility is dependence. Dependence. You are dependent. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. When the person comes and says, hey, I can't make it, Lord, God gives grace to such a person because he admits that he has need. And so therefore, it's a matter of independence or dependence. Now that has primarily in Scripture to do with our relationship to God. You look at the hundreds of passages that deal with pride versus humility. You discover primarily it's, a, it's something between you and God. But there is also a humility toward men that is exhibited and must be exhibited in the Christian life. When a person thinks of himself more highly than he ought to think, when a person despises his neighbor, what he's saying is, I don't need you. You can imagine that person's freezing in the snowstorm for a minute again, all right? And the fellow comes along and starts to try to help him. The guy says, I don't need you. Get lost. You know? Well, they'd all perish under those conditions. When the person desperately clings to the other person and is dependent upon him to see him through, then there is a mutual consideration. Now, of course, one of the things you find in the New Testament uh, 
is that, uh, uh, particularly in the church in Corinth, there was an attitude of pride. A very basic attitude. I don't need you. And the problem in the body of Christ is the attitude that there are parts of the body that are not essential to the body. We treat them like we would an appendix, like we would the tonsils. And the amazing thing is they're finding out now that tonsils are good for you. I took mine out and they can't put them back. But they're finding out now that it's not so hot to take the tonsils out unless absolutely necessary, where they're, they're almost totally destroyed. They're trying to save the tonsils now. Because after all the years of saying tonsils were useless, uh, coming from our uh, evolutionary uh, process, that's a part that hasn't dropped off yet or something, uh, now all of a sudden they're finding, oh, wait a minute, there is a purpose for tonsils, see? And so they're trying to save tonsils whenever possible. I don't know how, they'll probably change the other way again. I don't know. But we treat parts of the body of Christ as though they're not worthwhile. We despise our neighbor, our associates. We say they're not important. I mean, after all, who needs a liver? You know, kind of ugly looking thing anyway. I don't really need it. Who needs a toe? You know, it's, it's amazing. Have you ever... Have you ever wondered what your little toe is for? It seems like the most worthless part of that foot. I mean, why in the world have a little toe? I can see the big toe. You, you, you put a lot of weight on that big toe. Tell you what, just go and take a hammer, smash that little toe, and find out what it's for. Now, don't, don't you kids take me literally, all right? <laughs> Try to go on with your jogging routine with, without two little toes. You're going to find out something. Those little toes are important. Not conspicuous, but they're important. Every part of the body of Christ is important. And Paul, when he wrote to the Corinthian church in the 12th chapter, he deals with this very thing. He says, just because you don't think that one part of the body is comely, that means good looking, doesn't mean it's not a part of the body. It is a necessary part of the body. And he tells us not to despise any part of the body. Now we tend to see our gift, to see our ministry, and to see it as important. You know, God has given us um, a significant ministry. And we're, it's, it's ministry we share. I always think in terms of ministry here as being a we ministry. It's not my ministry. It's our ministry. We're in this together. We're a team. And in some way or another, each of you have contributed to the health and the welfare of this body. All of you. You say, well, I, I don't know anything great that I've done. I didn't say everybody did something great or prominent. But everybody has made a contribution. Some negative, some positive, but they're all a contribution, you know? Because we're a part of a body. You don't look at the other guy and say, he's, he's worthless. I mean, what in the world is that guy doing to help the body? Well, maybe he ought to do more. Maybe he ought to function better. Maybe he would if you didn't despise him. We've got to recognize everybody has a part. I, I, we have a gal, and I, I wouldn't have to name her. Most of you would know her. Uh, but uh, uh, 
she is uh, a little uh, retarded, and uh, yet this gal has the heart of a servant. I was up at Bill Gothard's thing uh, uh, yesterday and uh, had a wonderful time, by the way. Our whole staff went up, and it was really a, a super time. But here I saw this gal, you know, and man, she was counting out material and, and all, all the rest of it. Now, she's loud. She embarrasses you once in a while. You know, she'll, she shouted clear across the room, Hi, Pastor, how are you? You know, what do you want, Pastor? What can I do for you? You know, and it's, it's, it, she's not exactly my type, you know, <laughs> yeah, from the standpoint of personality and everything. But that gal, if there's something to do, she's there. And she'll do it faithfully, time after time after time after time after time after time. She has a tremendous capacity to do things. She wants to serve. And uh, she'll never be an intellectual giant. She'll probably never be effective as a, as a Bible teacher. But the gal in her own way serves the Lord. Now, what do we do? We look at it and say, good night, you know. She's sure not, you know, what's she doing here? She embarrasses people and she's loud and all the rest. I mean, we can find a closet somewhere, lock her in there, you know. You know, because, because she, her contribution sometimes uh, is, is, is hard to understand, but she contributes. All right? I think of um, I think of of, of this uh, Ed. Um, what's his last name? No, no, not. I, I think of him too. But uh, yeah. Anyway, you know, he came up to me. He's 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 a guy that that uh, works at uh, Youth Outreach in the summer, up at camp, and uh, uh, they call him Pigpen because he. He, 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 because he's uh, uh, got uh, some serious uh, uh, nerve problems and so on in terms of his, his body, uh, he has to drag his feet. And up at, if you've ever been to Mamac, you know they got nothing but dust up there. And wherever he goes, there's this little cloud of dust all around him, you know, it just looks... Anyway, I, the, the guy, the guy uh, uh, comes uh, stumbling into church on Sunday morning, you know, and he all, he, because he, he, he takes the whole aisle, getting down the aisle, because he swings his arms and, you know, trying to make his body uh, get down there, you know, and the guy likes to sit in the front, and he always comes a little late, so you can't miss him, second service, a little bit late, you can always find him there, he's always come, coming down, and everything he does is an exaggerated motion because it's difficult for him to do things. And he'll come in with his little uh, um, uh, Sherlock Holmes hat on, you know, and his cane and the whole thing. And he comes swinging down the aisle. He gets in there and he sits down and he whips his, whips his hat off and sits there and drinks in the Word. And he came up to me a few Sundays ago. And he, he said, uh, he says, Pastor, he says, he says uh, if, you, if you got any people, that just have special problems. He says, I'm just, I'll be glad to, uh, to minister to them any way I can. He says, that's what they do up at camp. He says, and the people have special problems. And he says, I've got a special problem. So he says, I, he says, I understand special problems. And you got somebody you need. He said, I'll just, I'm just happy to do anything I can. Now, boy, I'll tell you, there's a gem. All right? You don't despise somebody like that. The contribution he's making to the body of Christ is immense. 
Don't ever despise your neighbor. If you lack character, if you don't have lab, if you don't have heart, if you lack that inner resource of soul, it'll be evidenced by the fact that you will not see the value in what other people can do. You won't see their contribution. I look back through the years and I think of all of the people that have contributed to my life, such as it is. And I think, good night. There were really some people that I never, ever expected would make any significant contribution to anything at the time. But I look back and I realize a word spoken in season, like apples of gold in pictures of silver, uh, just, a, uh, just a thoughtful deed, uh, just some little kind thing that steered me straight, some rebuke that came along the way. That's the body of Christ functioning. We must not despise our associate. In Psalm 8.5, and I was studying last night after elders meeting uh, uh, Psalm uh, 8 in just a quiet time with the Lord, and, and I was impressed again with... Uh, with man as God intended man to be. And um, there, is a, there is a dignity to man that is inherent because we're made in the image of God. And that dignity has been distorted and it's a fallen uh, relationship now. We do not, we do not uh, find it easy to possess our possessions, to inherit what God has for us. And of course Hebrews uh, points out that in essence Christ, the second Adam, the new Adam, uh, it also points this out in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Christ, the new Adam, actually uh, fulfills for us uh, the, the promises of, of a psalm like this. And it's Christ, the perfect man, the God-man, uh, in essence, fills that, that that man could never fill. That's why we consider the eighth psalm a messianic psalm. It has messianic implications because Christ, in essence, fulfills this. But God reveals pure and simple in this psalm, particularly in verse five, the 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 tremendous dignity that man has. Just listen to what it says in verse 4. What is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. Or perhaps, as some translations have it, because the word is Elohim, you've made him a little lower than God. Uh, scholars um, have reckoned on this text uh, uh, because the Septuagint translated it angels, and some of the translations can come through that way, and the word Elohim with the proper prefix can also mean angels, but the prefix is absent here. Uh, scholars have pretty well, uh, are pretty well unanimous uh, that, uh, that probably uh, it means exactly what it says. You made God, made man a little lower than God. And, of course, that would include a relationship as far as the angels are concerned as well. And the Septuagint translation was used in the, in the passage in Hebrews, too. Uh, but uh, in all likelihood, 
uh, it is it is actually in its uh, original form uh, comparing man in his status not merely to angels but to God himself that God did not make man fully God but he made man a little lower than God in any event however you see it it says that he has crowned him with glory and honor and made him to have dominion to reign or to rule over the works of, of God's hands and hath put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowls of the air, the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the path of the sea, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in the earth. Well, now the writer to Hebrews says, you made the, angel, you made the man a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor. You put all things under his feet, but we don't see everything put under his feet. I mean, what went wrong in this whole thing? But we see Christ. And so it points to the fact that Christ fulfills it. Now I, I say all that to come back to the fact that here is, here is the inspired word of God saying that man was given a very special place of dignity. And I want you to understand something. God's view of man is higher than man's view of man. If you want to understand man, you start with God. You don't start with man. And when you start with God, you come uh, to, the, uh, to the fact that God himself, in the first part of this psalm, um, that God, God's name is excellent. God knows what he's doing. And he, he chose in a sovereign choice at the time of creation to make man special. And that means that everybody is special. Every man is special. And there is a dignity to that. And there must be a respect for that. And even though man is a fallen man and man will do things that are wrong and man sometimes need re needs rebuke, nevertheless, it is wrong for us to ever despise another man or to look down upon him as though he has no significant contribution to make because he is a special creation of God. Anyone who undercuts the dignity of man because of racial difference, because of economic standing, or even because of age. Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example. What a rebuke that must have been to older men who had a despising of a younger man when they saw that Paul wrote to Timothy as a young man and encouraged him don't let anybody despise your youth. You hang in there and be an example of what a believer ought to be in word and manner of life, in love, in purity, in faith, all of these other things. Don't let anyone despise your youth. Don't give them any reason to despise your youth. Even despising age, there is to be a respect on the part of older men to younger men and younger men to older men. Certainly it says younger men should, should, should bow uh, their, their neck in submission to the older men because the years of wisdom have, uh, have something to say. But by the same token, Scripture also says, let each of you be submissive to everyone else. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Submit yourselves one to another in the fear of the Lord. Older, younger, no matter what your status. And whenever you undercut that dignity for any of these reasons or other reasons that you might cite, you're guilty of sin. There was a special punishment 
for those that scorn their parents, as an example. In, in Proverbs um, 30 and verse 17, I don't know whether it's too early in the morning for this verse or not, but we'll go ahead and try it. It says, The eye that mocketh at the father, it means to, la'og is a word that means to ridicule or uh, to uh, make fun of. Actually, it was a word that meant to imitate his voice. Ever hear a, a dad say to his child, now son, you get out there and do that. And hear the boys say, nya, 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 you know, or, uh, or repeat his words. Now son, you get out there and do it. That's mocking. It's ridicule. It's, it's a sense of despising. I that mocketh at his father, despiseth to obey his mother. The ravens of the valley shall pick it out, and the young eagles shall eat it. You got this raven swooping down on you, picking your eye out, dropping it on the ground, and along comes a young eagle, and eats it up. Now you got one less eye. Do it again, you lose the other eye. I don't know. Then they pick you to pick you to pieces after that. That's quite a verse, I'll tell you. That's judgment that comes. Why? Because just because a child ridicules his parents and despises them. Uh, to despise a neighbor is to fail to love him. And we're commanded to love one another. All right, now, that then takes care of the negative side of the verse. A man that does not have this inner character, this heart, such an individual, the one that is destitute of heart, will despise his neighbor. I know that puts you uh, in that category. If you despise your neighbor, we'll, we'll know. Oh, it would be interesting, wouldn't it, if you come along and say, boy, you know, that guy's really a bum. And you say, uh, I see you lack character. <laughs> <laughs> that you're devoid of character. That's a, be quite a rebuke, wouldn't it? But in any event, if you're void of character, void of heart, you will despise or belittle or count of no, as of no value your neighbor. However, this ever-present, antithetical uh, picture, the vow that is found here repeatedly in this section of Proverbs uh, brings us uh, back to the reality not only of what we shouldn't be but what we can be. And it says, but a man of understanding holdeth his peace. He holds his peace. He, he reserves judgment. He doesn't he doesn't jump into, into making rash statements about another individual. I would I just say before we look at the words themselves, if you as a Christian have any sense, you're, you will reserve judgment as to the value of a person for a whole long time. You'll watch people, you'll let them grow, you know, there's a, a, get back to this age thing, you know. We have a tendency to prejudge young people, and I think we do them a lot of harm. Um, we see these kids ripping around here, you know, knocking people over and rude and everything else. And, and, and uh, um, you know, they're always in a hurry, and, and um, uh, you know, they've got enthusiasm galore, but it's all misguided, you know. It's going the wrong direction. We have a tendency to say, that, kid, that kid's not going to amount to anything. And the older you get, the easier it is to, for that to be true. 
the less patient you are with these things. Of course, the big thing is the older you get, the poorer your memory is, you know. And uh, uh, if your memory is poor, you forget what you were like at that age. And uh, one of the things that, that God gifted me with was a terrific memory for my childhood. And every time I see these kids doing some of these things, I realize, good night, you know. I sure hope they don't dream up some of the things I thought of when I was that age. Now, I hesitate to even talk about some of the things I did because, uh, you know, I, I could uh, do things that you wouldn't believe. And, but I remember them, all right? And I hold, withhold judgment. The jury is not yet in on these young people. <coughs> and I think that the wise person is the one who waits to see and just prays for that person. Let them grow. And I'll tell you, we, we look at uh, some of the young people that we have had in past years. Hey, I'll, I'll give you a clue, okay? If you would have told the, um, my parents, as an example, who had some ministry in his life, um, if you would have told them that Don Richardson would ever have turned out to be the solid missionary that he is today and would have, would have risen to the place of prominence in the evangelical world, that he has risen to in the writing of Peace Child and having it printed in Reader's Digest. And so on. If you would have told my parents that he was going to turn out like that, they probably, if they were really honest, would have said, although my dad would probably be the wait and see, let's see how he turns out before we judge type of person. Nevertheless, if they were really honest, they would have said, well, no, we didn't really believe that was true. I think that's something. How about Paul Maxwell's president of Prairie Bible Institute? I could even say more about him. <laughs> he and I were very close friends in high school. If you would have told me then, in fact, we used to talk about what we would do to change that school. If we... <laughs> if you would have told me he would ever be president, if you, would have ever told, if you would have told me that he'd still be going on with the Lord at this stage in his life, or that I would be, there are a lot of people that'd be willing to tell you you're crazy. I, I went to Prairie, I returned to Prairie, for the, I left in 1957. And when I left Prairie, I never returned until last summer. And when I returned and people on that campus found out I was there, they had to come and see this thing which had come to pass. <laughs> I had teachers look at me and go like this, you know, and they say, is it really true that you're a preacher? You know, <laughs> I mean, really. The jury is still out. I like to think of every person that I meet, particularly our Christian friends, as having a little sign around them saying, still under construction. Hold your peace. Reserve your judgment. It's not time yet to decide whether the guy's going to be a success or a failure. There's still time 
for him to grow and make a contribution. All right, now, this will be some fun. A man of understanding. Here's the word. Tibuna. Tibuna comes from Binya, which means to discern, to separate between, to be able to distinguish, all right? And the word, the word tabuna really means intelligence. It's the intelligence that comes from a tremendous sense of discernment, all right? So if you're a person of discernment, a person of insight and discretion, a person that's very discerning, this really is an intense word, very intelligent, very discerning. Um, that individual is a very important individual. Uh, when we get to chapter 15, verse 21, it says, Folly is joy to him who is destitute of lab. There's our word for heart again. Folly is joy to him who is destitute of this inner character. But a man of understanding walketh uprightly. He is able to discern the path and able to see what is, what is right. We saw the same individual back in uh, Proverbs 3. Proverbs chapter 3 and uh, verse 13 where it says, Happy is the man that findeth wisdom and happy is the man that getteth understanding. Tabuna. Getteth uh, this special kind of discernment and insight. And Proverbs 8, the feminine use of the word. In verse 1, where it's talking about wisdom, and it says, Doth not wisdom cry, and understanding put forth her voice? Proverbs uh, uh, chapter 2 and verse 3, uh, the, the word tabuna was used with binah. Uh, uh, in the same uh, in the same setting, uh, there it says, uh, "So uh, thou shalt incline thine ear unto wisdom, binah, uh, discernment, and apply thine heart to this special kind of intense discernment." So, if you're a discerning person, here you have the one person who who lacks character, he lacks heart. His mind isn't really what it should be. His emotions aren't really what they should be. His uh, will isn't really what it should be. His conscience isn't really as sensitive as it should be. His self-consciousness, his awareness of himself and awareness of other people, as well as his awareness of God, isn't as keen as it should be. The guy lacks character, right? He despises his neighbor. But the smart guy, the guy who really is able to distinguish between two things. The person that is able to really understand where it's at. All of us would like to think that we're in that category, right? We don't want to be in the other category. But if you are, then you'll show it. And here's how you'll show it. C-H-A-R-A-S-H. Harash. Harash means to keep secret to keep silent, to be speechless, or even to be deaf. Because the same word was used to speak of, of those who were deaf-mutes. You just wait. You don't put your foot in the mouth. Some people, you know, 
use uh, shoe polish for toothpaste because they got their foot in the mouth all the time. It's the idea of non-communication. It can mean either not speaking or not hearing. And the verb is used 46 times in the Old Testament. Uh, in Psalm 35, in verse 22, it's used uh, where David prays, Lord, don't keep silence. Lord, speak. Don't keep silence. Uh, also in Psalm 83 and verse 1, it's, uh, it's used. Very common idiom, by the way, uh, used uh, all the way through the Old Testament with the concept of holding your peace or, or just remaining silent, not yet forming a full opinion. It says in Psalm 83 verse 1, Keep not thou silence, O God. Hold not thy peace. And be not still, O God. In other words, God, you're too much like this. <laughs> I want you to speak. You've been, you've been standing back and not speaking. I want you to speak. Abraham's servant, uh, in Genesis 24, 21, reserved judgment. Remember? He, he uh, had come looking for, for a bride for Isaac. And uh, as things begin to develop, it says he held his peace. He didn't jump to a conclusion. He didn't prejudge positively or negatively. He just backed off and was speechless. Didn't say anything too soon. Didn't pass judgment. Psalm 39 and verse 12. Psalm 39 and verse 12. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear unto my cry. Hold not thy peace at my tears. Don't, don't just be silent. You don't want God to be silent. God wants us sometimes to be silent. Psalm 50 and verse 3. Our God shall come and shall not keep silence. Psalm 109 and verse 1. Psalm 109 and verse 1. Hold not thy peace, O God, of my praise. Look at Proverbs 17, verse 28. Even a fool, when he holdeth his peace, is counted wise. Keep your mouth shut. Don't make hasty, don't use hasty words, pass hasty judgments. And even if you happen to be a fool, people are going to say, boy, he must really be wise. Look how silent he is. He that shutteth his lips is esteemed a man of understanding. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And verse 7. For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory if thou hast not received it? Whatever you have is a gift from God. So you keep your judgment to yourself. You abstain from censure. You abstain from arrogant criticism of the other person. 
this individual is too wise to think he's infallible. To think that he knows what the end and the last chapter is really going to be. He knows he can't see the hidden motive. He knows that he can't see into the heart of that individual. He can't judge the heart. And he knows himself too well to condemn. Remember in Galatians chapter 6, we're told that he that is uh, spiritual is to restore such an one. If a brother be overtaken in a fault or in a sin, trespass, he that are spiritual, restore such an one in a spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest you also be tempted. The person that's really qualified to deal with him is the guy that say, boy, that could have been me. I could have fallen that way. And deals with it accordingly. Remember Christ said concerning the woman caught in adultery, let him that is without sin cast the first stone. I'd like to sometimes when I've heard a person taken uh, to pieces a little bit, I'm not talking about proper church discipline, I'm talking about gossip and criticism, this kind of thing. I'd sometimes like to stand him up before the audience and say, all, all right, we're here to condemn this individual and I'd like to have anybody who has never sinned to come up and help in the judgment, you know. I'd just like to see who'd, I, who'd volunteer because we'd probably be able to figure out some way to put him on the stand before too long, find out if he's really true. He that's without sin, let him cast the first stone. There's a whole lot of passages that deal with this. And uh, we're going to take time to look at those next week because they're, they're very apropos. We can only get started. But... Uh, Start with Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58 and verse 7. Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry? And that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house? When thou seest the naked, that thou cover him, and that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh. God wants his people to see the other person in his need and do whatever we can for him in terms of trying to, to help rather than inserting and insinuating our, our own uh, false judgments into the picture. You're all familiar with Christ's words in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. Judge not that you be not judged. You know, we have a, we have a, tremendous, a tremendously difficult situation in that we get so far from the biblical standard that we have a hard time understanding what God is really is really saying and really doing. Um, almost every level of ministry, we have evaluation, all right? I mean, uh, I should say almost every level of employment, 
we have evaluation. And um, in the hard, cold business world, I suppose it's necessary uh, to say our goal is to, is to um, uh, sell 50 units this month. And if you sell 50 units, uh, then we will evaluate you and see how many you've sold. And if you've sold 50, then you've reached the objective. If you're below that, you're less than the objective, and if you're above that, you're above the objective, all right? Now that's probably legitimate in the business world. But you've got a real problem when it comes to Christian ministry. Because here's a Sunday school teacher that is teaching a class of junior boys. And when you look in the class, the kids are climbing the walls. And so what we do is we set up a false criteria whereby we judge their effectiveness. You know what? I'll tell you something. And this is a tough one, particularly for Christian educators, because they try to do the best job they can. But you can't judge them. You cannot evaluate what they're doing. Why? Because the, it's not 50 units they're supposed to sell. It's whether or not they glorify God. That's the thing. And you see, you may not be able to tell whether they're glorifying God or not. You'll find out in eternity. How are you going to feel if you fire a teacher for being incompetent only to find that it was the only teacher in your Sunday school that really was glorifying God?